It's Monday, and I am approaching the Everglades, yet again. After scanning the stations for a couple minutes, I finally wind up on Miami's NPR station, WLRN 91.3. Their local show, Sundial, is playing. The host is discussing the upcoming legislative session starting on March 5th. After the break, the increase in hate groups in South Florida. I turn off the Sawgrass Expressway, which is what it is actually called, and I turn onto I-75 North, which locals affectionately call Alligator Alley. I've traveled this expanse for the show before in search of the Skunk Ape, but I was on Tamiami Trail, which is far less populated and way, way further south. Neither of these roads actually run through the Everglades National Park. In fact, Tamiami Trail is actually the one that pushes up against it, but doesn't actually cross into the park proper. Alligator Alley instead cuts through the Everglades and Francis S. Taylor Wildlife Management Area. The area is 670,000 acres, which is about 1,050 square miles. Though I-75 cuts through the middle of it, you can only really touch the outskirts of the area. To reach the core, you'd need to go in a bit and start traveling into the swamps. That doesn't mean that there isn't anything to see from the roads. In fact, I saw two alligators in just a parking lot. There are a number of rest stops in the area for people to picnic, fish, or launch their boats. One was empty, besides me and a fisherman who sat on a metal railing. Some creature was bouncing under the dark canal, and I asked the fisherman if those were fish. I assume, he says with a laugh. I ask if he fishes here often, but he says only once in a blue moon. The spot is a good 20 minutes from anywhere else, so it's understandable. Further along, just a few minutes more, there's a rest area with a fire department, several recreational areas, and a visitor center. Here, I expected to find rangers, or greeters, or something. Instead, I found two bathrooms connected to a central room with statues of birds hanging above and a topographical map of the Everglades in the middle. Pictures of animals and mangroves covered the walls with informational panels underneath. I didn't stop to read, however, as I assumed that the information was out of date just by the look of it. Heading back towards the east coast away from the center of this area, the mile markers tick down. 38, 37, 36. On either side of the road, the wetlands stretch out far, far out of view. Little islands poke out of the ground, but it is mostly flat. It boggles the mind how far it goes and how massive the sky starts to look. It's just the ground and the sky out here, and that makes it all the more interesting when you reach the middle point of mile marker 28 and mile marker 29. The road here rises, and your car gets a higher view of the wetlands. Right here, if you look south and you really squint, you see nothing. However, soon, you may see something that hasn't been in the Everglades for over 50 years. Or so I thought. Five miles west of US-27 and 10 miles south of I-75, approximately halfway between mile markers 28 and 29, in the middle of protected Everglades, Cantor Real Estate plans to build an oil well. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian Podcast. This week, the first part of a continuing story about oil in the Everglades. This is a developing story, which means that there are several sides to it, so a new part of this story will be coming out as the story develops over the coming months this entire spring. You can expect the next chapter of this in mid to late March. This week is part one, exploratory. The headline read as follows. 
Appeals court clears way for drilling of exploratory oil well in Everglades. That's from Treasure Coast Palm on February 5th. The story is picked up across the state. The original text is written by Jim Saunders from News Service Florida, which allows the republication of their articles statewide. So Orlando Weekly, DC Palm, Miami New Times, and more are all sharing this story. Two days after the initial publication, former Democratic gubernatorial candidate Andrew Gillum tweets the article from CBS Miami. He says, quote, this cannot be allowed to proceed, end quote. It gets about 5,000 retweets and almost 13,000 likes. Most comments underneath blame Republicans, nearly all lament the destruction, and one commenter mentions Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, the grandmother of the Everglades. Besides this, the media is relatively silent. The story in plain terms is as follows. A few years ago, a group called Cantor Real Estate, based out of Miami, was interested in building an exploratory oil well in protected Everglades land north of the National Park and a wildlife management area. The proposal was initially shot down by the Department of Environmental Protection who approved such matters. The first district court of appeals overturned this initial ruling and allowed Cantor to go ahead with their construction in early February. So they had land, they were turned down by the DEP, and then a first district said, no, go ahead. The mayor of the nearby city of Miramar was intending on fighting it, along with other officials from Broward County and certain environmental groups. Mayor Wayne Messam of Miramar said, quote, I'm very, very disappointed in the ruling that was rendered today. I think it's terrible for the Everglades to even think about the prospect of oil drilling just outside our city, end quote. He goes on to mention that the drilling would affect his city and, of course, the greater Everglades. I was certain that this story would be everywhere, national even. Someone was trying to build an exploratory oil well in protected land. It seemed obvious to me that this would be discussed and then shot down so quickly that it wouldn't even become a concern for long. I was very, very wrong. For several reasons. But we're not there yet. After I left the wildlife management area, I followed signs towards Miramar, home to this outspoken mayor, Wayne Messam, just 30 minutes north of Miami. Miramar was founded in 1955, named after a suburb of Havana. The population is small, a little over 120,000, but it's densely populated. The most interesting detail of this city's demographic is their Jamaican population, which makes up 15%. Mayor Messam himself is a first-generation American born of Jamaican-born parents. The city doesn't expand very much north or south, and mostly stretches west and east with loads of apartment complexes, many of which are built around the city center. This center has the same warm, tan, yellow color as most buildings in Florida. The apartment buildings around the city center are a lot more colorful, but the library and town hall stand like these classic government buildings, but dipped in Florida sunshine. The library is large and kid-friendly. When I inquired about the oil well with the librarians, they all responded with this puzzled expression and mentioned that they'd not heard of this story, although they'll look into it. I appreciated that. I got a similar response from a security guard, a permits clerk, and an employee of the city commission office. All three could not have been more kind and accommodating, apologizing at their lack of further information, and accidentally directing me on something of a goose chase. I don't blame the friendly employees of Miramar City Government. They informed me that this was likely a more prominent county problem, but the mayor would be glad to meet with me. I was given a contact number and I was sent on my way. But evening was approaching and the city was humming with traffic as residents returned home and the greater city of Miami was sent into a buzz. 
My trip for now was done, and I took to the turnpike to head north. I don't blame the citizens of Miramar. It's easy to lose things like this in the constant barrage of news and information that engrosses us at all times. Also, if you aren't plugged in 24-7, the story might have just been a blip that you zoomed right past. The internet isn't a reflection of reality, and real people aren't always as fired up as we'd like to think they are. Not to mention the fact that this story is not easy to digest. There's a lot of players, and there's a lot of pieces of complicated information, so sorting through all of that takes some effort. So, I did it for you. From the beginning. In 2015, Cantor Real Estate LLC sent an application to the Florida Department of Environmental Protection. The company is owned by Joseph Cantor, a 90-year-old World War II veteran who created the Cantor Family Foundation. He is a nationwide developer who helped create the town of Lauderhill in Florida and some others nationwide. His LLC owns a spot of land in the Everglades that is about 20,000 acres large. It is within Water Conservation Area 3. It's somewhat isolated in this middle area, east of the Big Cypress National Preserve, south of the Francis S. Taylor Wildlife Management Area, north of the Everglades National Park. It is way, way out there. And it is there that the LLC has started developing land. They started going into preparations to begin exploring for oil. Based on research, the group believes that the spot has a 23% chance of providing oil. I will say that number again, a 23% chance of producing oil. This number shocked me with how low it is for how much effort is being put in, but apparently 23% likelihood is a very high number for oil. That's a great number in that field, apparently. Regardless, their pitch moved on to the group that decides these sorts of things, the Florida Department of Environmental Protection, or the DEP. Cantor brought several things in order to indicate the validity of their request. The DEP had requested lots of information about the land. Cantor had taken several actions to aid stormwater drainage and other pollution from the construction on their land. They were trying to be as ecologically friendly and smart as they possibly could. The department, with all this in mind, still denied Cantor their application. Their explanation covered several things. Mainly, they discussed the dangerous impact on the aquifers and other water systems below ground. This was their first mistake, says Matthew Schwartz, head of South Florida Wetlands Association. By not mentioning the damage to the greater ecosystem and the wildlife, but instead focusing on underground water systems, the DEP lessened their case. In addition, in their final ruling, they spoke on the Everglades Forever Act. This act was passed in the early 90s and has been the basis for many laws and rulings related to our famous swamp. The final ruling against Cantor in 2017 included the Everglades Forever Act as a reason against the drilling. The department ruled, and that was it. But the department had essentially handed themselves their own demise, built their own coffin, giving Cantor and the courts all the tools they need to break apart their argument. The legal document recounting the new ruling literally tears it apart piece by piece. Every single reason why it is okay for Cantor to build out here. And let me tell you, it isn't pretty. First of all, the Everglades Forever Act doesn't cover everything that the DEP wants it to. Specifically, quote, although the secretary commented that the Everglades Forever Act demonstrates a legislative dedication to long-term Everglades restoration, the Everglades Forever Act does not prohibit exploratory oil drilling, end quote. 
So the Everglades Forever Act covers lots of restoration and protections, but it doesn't protect against oil drilling. The aforementioned secretary in the previous quote is Noah Valenstein, who was unanimously voted back into his position as the secretary of the Florida Department of Environmental Protection by the Florida cabinet this past Tuesday. By including the act in their final ruling, the DEP was throwing unnecessary details into the fight, and this did not look good in retrospect. And it gets worse from there. There is an oil well just 24 miles west of the proposed area that was built in the 1970s, and it's just one of several. Theoretically, if the aquifer is the major concern for the DEP, 24 miles is not a large distance between the two wells at all. So what makes the new Canterwell so different? The specific area where they want to build, quote, did not have any qualities that would make it vulnerable to pollution of the land, aquifer, or surface waters, end quote. In fact, several findings show that if Cantor wanted to build an oil well, they had found the ideal spot, ecologically speaking. It, quote, has no special characteristics that would make it susceptible to pollution, end quote. And it's situated in an area that is known as the pocket. This means that the area has a failing habitat, not thriving ecologically speaking, and, quote, lessened environmental values, end quote. To simplify, they're saying that this supposed pocket is already a diminished and degraded area, thus digging would not have a serious impact. The other wells and the diminished quality of the area both point as contributing factors as to why the original ruling was overturned, but there's one point that Cantor made that is devastating and makes you see precisely why the DEP is in the wrong here. For that, we have to go a little west to the Big Cypress National Preserve. And here, the Big Cypress National Preserve protects part of the vital water supply in the area of the state and other natural resources in the public interest that you people out there. This road was designed- That's Betty Osceola speaking, a member of the Miccosukee tribe in South Florida. She and others are standing outside of an area in the Big Cypress National Preserve known as Raccoon Point. It is an area bought by Texas-based Burnett Oil. They did an ecological test and discovered that the area was right above the Sunaland Formation, which is an extensive source of fossil fuels across South Florida. Protesters gathered in the area several times over the course of a year from 2015 to 2016, protesting fracking, construction, and of course, oil wells. Their protests, though loud, garnered nothing. Raccoon Point and Bear Island are now active drills in the protected land just north of the Everglades, which is home to the critically endangered Florida panther and hundreds of other plants and animals, including about 30 unique to the area. Would you like to know the worst part of it? I, I know it's hard to imagine that it gets worse, but it does. Besides the Florida Department of Environmental Protection approving this, the National Park Service that manages Big Cypress National Preserve advertises it right in the middle of their website. Quote, Oil was first discovered in the Sunaland area in 1943 and has continued to be extracted from beneath lands that are now part of the preserve. End quote. They're proud of it. The Sun Sentinel has an incredibly useful article that has an interactive map showing every single oil well that was ever dug in the state of Florida, including 80 or so built in the early part of the 20th century that were entirely dry. The first ever well that produced oil in the state 
was right at the border of present-day Big Cypress National Preserve. This is the 31st episode of Wait 5 Minutes, the 28th of our regular episodes. I have researched education, history, politics, immigration, budget spending, you name it. I've never felt more naive about a topic than I feel about this one. Because I've spent weeks on this, and every time that I open a new article, crack a new book, or dive into a new topic, I find more and more that I couldn't even imagine being true. Oil in the Everglades, and not just oil, lots of it. Crude oil is found via seismic explorations using huge trucks and equipment to send vibrations into the earth. The trucks that did the explorations for Raccoon Point drove straight into wetlands, degrading the soil and destroying trees and plants. There are several clips that show these trucks just barreling through muck, taking down trees without pause. The National Resource Defense Council, a nonprofit that supports environmental protection, shares that in March of 2016, Florida produced 6,000 barrels per day of crude oil. In comparison, in the same month, Texas produced 3.2 million barrels per day. That is about 533 times more oil than Florida. When it comes to this topic, I am green. Incredibly green. But that doesn't mean I always have to be, and neither do you. This story is massive. We haven't even talked to the people fighting the constructions. We haven't learned about how dangerous oil and oil search can be. We haven't visited an affected area, and we barely even know how oil well exploration works. But that's okay. Because I don't care who you are. In your gut, you know this is wrong. If it makes you sick, hopefully it makes you angry. The Florida Department of Environmental Protection approved those permits in Big Cypress, but didn't approve Cantor's. For them, that's a problem, but Cantor's belief is that if you're going to be there, why not do it here? I argue why do you have to do it anywhere, but apparently that's beside the point. Regardless, Cantor hasn't started digging anywhere. So we have time. But not long. To be continued next month in our exploration of oil in the Everglades, in part two, The Pocket. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian podcast. I hope that you enjoyed it, and I hope that you stay tuned because this is a big story, probably the biggest that I have covered since I started this show, and I really, really want it to be important, and I want it to help you and me be better Floridians, more conscious Floridians. As for our show, there is a new episode coming out this upcoming Tuesday of Tallahassee Tuesday. It will be on the exact day that the Florida legislature meets, so there will not be new news about the Florida legislature, but there will be lots of news about the buildup and some of the actions of Governor Ron DeSantis. So tune in Tuesday, March 5th for that. If you enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes that have been coming out recently, please feel free to leave a review or a rating or a comment. It really, really means a lot to me and it helps a little show like this one grow. If you have a topic suggestion for me, you can reach me at wait5minutespodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at wait5minutespodcast. I really look forward to hearing from you. All of the songs used in this episode are from Lobo Loco, and all of the sources used in the research can be found in the description below, as well as the titles of the songs used. I will see you this upcoming Tuesday for our next installment of Tallahassee Tuesday. Until then, be good to yourself, be good to each other, and please drink more water. I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Have a great weekend, everybody. Mm-hmm.